welcome to the Writer's Block, Episode 6, Creep Show, brought to you by Hercules, the Herculean cure for what ails your nethers. I am Rylan Grant, head creep, Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and The Jump. Uh, the other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left this time is... David Avalone, writer of uh, comic books such as Betty Page and Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, and Drawing Blood and other stuff, and very and uh, assorted uh, movies and nonsense. Um, assorted nonsense. So much nonsense. <laughs> so much nonsense. <laughs> Way too much nonsense. Uh, if you missed episode five last week, our uh, career path discussion with He-Man, Wonder Woman scribe, uh, Amanda Dybert, and screenwriter, Kanto creator, David Boer, we strongly suggest that you back it on up and check that out. It was a great talk. Um, we have a great show for you today. Uh, we will bring our guests on in just a moment. But before then, uh, before that, excuse me, David, you and I have a few things to plug, right? We do have, we do have things to plug. Uh, currently... There's a Kickstarter for Elvira the Omega Mam. So it's a 40-page special co-created by me and uh, Cassandra Peterson, the real Elvira, art by Dave Acosta. As the title might imply, it is a satire of various post-apocalyptic uh, stories, but it, uh, it, it deals a little bit with what we're going through right now. Um, is all I can say. Let's just say that what if what if there was a world-ending plague that started because people were injecting themselves with cleaning fluid? That's uh, <laughs> that's that's really the premise. And uh, you, Riley, why 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 in God's name would somebody do something like that? I don't. Understand. I don't know who could who could suggest such a thing. It's a you know it's a it's a wild farcical comedy that is based on absolutely nothing real. Interesting. Nice. And you have something that started Monday. Right? I do. Yeah. 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 It's weird. We're, uh, yeah, because we're recording this before it launches, but it's going to air after it launches. And so I'm pretending it's Wednesday, the 21st. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It sounds about right. Um, yeah, you're a lot better at this than me. I feel like I'm caught in this time <laughs> warp right now and I'm, I'm, you know, space time is bending around me. I'm, uh, I'm, you know, there are two of me running around right now. Uh, but yeah, um, my Kickstarter for a project called uh, The Peacekeepers uh, launched on Monday. And by now it is, uh, it's kicking ass, setting records, blowing minds, that whole thing. Um, it is a, a love letter to dark and quirky crime dramas um, in the vein of Fargo, No Country for Old Men. So if you love movies like that, if you love cases season, police dramas like The Wire or True Detective, if... Um, you love Elmore Leonard novels like I do. Um, if you are a fan of comic masterpieces like Criminal or 100 Bullets, you're going to love this thing. It is the book for you. Um, go check it out. Uh, bit.ly uh, bit backslash the peacekeepers. I'm sure there'll be a graphic up uh, while we're running there this. Will be a graphic. I promise. I'll oh, probably be covering my face. So no, I can do anything. No one will see me. Yeah. I'm going to try to reach around the graphic. I don't know about that. Um, yeah. And of course, all the info and all these things is uh, is down below in the show notes. So check that out. But um, uh, enough uh, enough promo, enough shameless uh, uh, promotion, right? Why don't we uh, bring our guests on for the Let's day? Let's bring in the lads, Mr. David Schrader. Hello. And everybody. Mr. Clay Adams. Tell us a little bit about yourself, lads. Hey all, uh, I'm Clay Adams. I'm uh, a writer, an actor, a director. Uh, I have a book coming out from Scout Comics this December called Red Xmas, which is a twisted holiday tale that's like Bad Santa meets the Terminator. Um, nice. So you can uh, you can check that out. It's in previews right now. I'm also um, one of the co-writers of Electric Youth from From Beyond Comics, which was recently featured in the LA Times, and I'm also a co-editor of Nightmare Theater, which is a horror anthology that's uh, on Kickstarter right now, just blowing it up, like beyond our wildest uh, dreams. So it's uh, it's fantastic. Oh, that's right. That launches the Tuesday the 20th? Tuesday the 20th, yesterday. Yesterday. Um, yesterday. 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 Incredible. Yeah. Excellent. Great first day. We're yeah. so... <laughs> Already fully funded, who could have guessed? Amazing, amazing, <laughs> just incredible. <laughs> And yeah. David? Oh, hey, I'm David Schrader. I'm the co-creator and writer of Baby Badass, which was a comic <clears throat> from Action Lab Danger Zone. Um, as Clay mentioned, I'm co-editor of Nightmare Theater. We're very excited to get in this Kickstarter thing. There's not enough Kickstarters out there. We figure we got to like 
you know, beef that up a little bit. And uh, I'm a writer. Always room for one more. (laughs) Yes, we're the last one. So you're getting (laughs) in. Um, uh, Also a writer filmmaker. uh, Did a film called NoHo back in the day. Um, A horror film called Bloodline, released by Lionsgate, that Clay was in, actually. So good we movie. Made, yeah, good movie. yeah, exactly. Good movie. And uh, the upcoming is that how you guys is that how you guys met? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, we were babies. <laughs> me and Keith, me and Keith Kalores co-wrote and co-directed Bloodline, which was kind of like a Friday the Thirteenth meets Memento kind of thing. It was a time fractured, low budget slasher. Um, Clay, you were like in your twenties, I think, when when you were shooting yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So, I, was, I really was a baby. And then we didn't really we didn't really reconnect until. I did Baby Badass because I was going to ask him about, you know, publishing because he had started Fried Comics or co- co-created Fried Comics. And uh, that's how we got back in touch again, probably after, I don't know, like eight years or something. Yeah. Here's a here's a wacky piece of trivia. My father wrote the novelization of Friday the 13th Part 3. That's awesome. You know what? I, I knew like that say, coming in. He did write it in 3D. He was in 3D at the time <laughs> nice. that he was writing it. He was entirely in three dimensions. I, I was there and I remember. Uh, which, which leads us to our topic. Um, wanted to talk about, it's October, and so it's perfectly appropriate to be talking about horror. And uh, I want to talk about, I mean, it's, a, it's an obvious thing that people do to say, what's your favorite thing, all that. But I'm really interested in influence. Uh, when you're a kid, you're a perfect audience for horror because you're just a little more credulous. You're just a little more prepared to believe and to really feel it. And uh, it takes hold of your imagination more easily and more powerfully, and that can stay with you for a lifetime. So I want to talk about what horror stories, comics, movies influenced us and fed into how we tell stories today and what did we learn uh, from those stories. Because I catch myself still you know, you put a scene in and you go, oh, this is this is that scene that I really liked when I was eight in a different thing. And I've re I've stripped the serial numbers off it. And I've but I learned something about something that's super effective to an audience because it was super effective to me. And I want to recreate that feeling over and over again. So, uh, David, why don't you start? What's what what really what really got its hooks into you when you were a kid? You know, the, the first really scary thing, there, there's two things. Um, Salem's Lot was a TV movie. And uh, as a kid, I, I think I was probably seven or eight when that came out. It was like the late, mid, late 80s, you know. And the scene where the, 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 the one kid is scratching at the window, um, that seared into my mind so much that I had just nightmares about it f- forever. Like I've never forgotten that scene, and I've seen it once or twice as an adult, and like it's kind of silly, but man, it got me. I mean, you're talking about a kid that when um, Lou Ferrigno turned into the Hulk, I, I, I was super scared by that whole process and his eye changing. That wasn't horror; that was Marvel and and you know Lou Ferrigno. But um, I, I think you can argue there's a definite the horror, there's a horror element. To, yeah, element yeah, you're right. Hulk, you're right. The Hulk has <laughs> DNA in. Uh, Chuckle Dr. Hyde. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yes, you're that's right. That's a horror. That's unambiguously a horror story. Absolutely. So I just remembered thinking like he was just about to come out of the closet all the time, like with <laughs> his eyes red. And um, I actually, what scared me more was Banner when he started changing, when his he turned and his eye was, um, you know, had 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 dilated and changed. That freaked me out. And then later, as I was a teenager, I think House, the movie House affected me a lot because I was like a horror can be a comedy. And I know that I'd kind of missed the boat a little on um, evil dead and evil Dead. Although evil dead too, I think might've come after house. I'm not sure. I think house was like 84, 85. The one was really fast. Right. And just so for me, I I love comedy. My whole thing was like Mel Brooks and Bugs Bunny cartoons and those kind of things. That's what I was raised on. And um, that killed me. I loved House, and I've never forgotten like that. That uh, you know, you can have both, and you can do it in a, in a different type of way. Mm-hmm. I remember I saw Evil Dead too. It was one of those classic things where I was flipping channels at three a.m. on cable, <laughs> unable to sleep, and I saw the opening credits, and I saw the. I mean, I, I definitely wasn't a child. I was in my twenties when that movie came out, and I saw the opening credits, and I was like, "Ah, oh, stop motion animation! I'll watch this." And like twenty five minutes later, I was like. This is the Citizen Kane 
of zombie comedy movies. Like no one has ever made a big. And then later, when I discovered that uh, that uh, Sam Raimi was an early influence on the Coen Brothers and that they worked together, I went, "Well, no kidding, man! Right, like, it, right, right. It's all it's all right there." Right. But, uh, Clay, what did, what uh, what got its hooks in you when you were a kid? Yeah, so when I was very young, probably I don't know, maybe six or seven, I had a babysitter who was the uh, the older sister of my friend who lived up the street, and she decided to entertain us by telling this story about a doll that came to life at night, and <laughs> and and lived off the blood of the kid who owned this doll, right? Oh man! And she the 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 babysitter you know, for was, kids. totally appropriate for kids she was a teenager she was an aspiring actress and so she acted it out so it's not even like she was telling this story like she put on a full one woman show and i very distinctly remember the scene where she's she's sewing up the arm of the kid who's in the hospital the kid thought thought he was safe in the hospital but the doll came and visited at the hospital and got him and and he was like sewing up the the cut where the doll was like was like sucking the blood and and after my parents got home i was like we are getting rid of all of my stuffed animals and i never want you to ever buy me another one ever again and that babysitter was glenn close <laughs> true story true story true story yeah very people know that so um, I, I i think that's probably why i love the chucky movies now like i think that idea really stuck uh, in my head but um but also just just that that real visceral thing of like i mean even today just that sewing up of the arm just that acting out that something of the vis the visceral acting out of it just really stuck with me um and then the other thing that i think really uh got to me too was like uh i was a big fan of the incredible hulk when i was younger and and you're right that moment of of banner changing in the eye because you knew what was coming right like you knew that something awesome was about to happen but also scary and you couldn't look away and it was that cue and i think it's something that um that hitchcock does really well in psycho that um that like i i love that movie and and i feel like you can learn so much from from watching it but so much of it is about the build-up to the moment um, in, in that shower. And, um, and, and I, I think that David Banner eye is something like that too, where it's like you, it, it, it just cues you that, that something's about to happen and it just builds up that suspense. Good answer. Good, an- good answer. Good answer. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Survey says a, a, uh, a funny, like, uh, a, a moment where I could have influenced Hollywood and nobody listened to me. Someone gave me the script, uh, an executive gave me the script, um, the first draft of The Hulk, before Ang Lee got it. Hmm. And I uh, I read it, and I thought it was pretty good. But I said, uh, you know, just give this to David Cronenberg. It's, a bo- it's body horror. Let him do his rewrite. This is good yeah. enough for him that you got a story here. Let him do a rewrite. This is this will be great. And instead, Ang Lee, uh, (laughs) director of Eat, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, that incredible horror classic uh, and science fiction, towering work of science fiction. But also Um, Crouching Tiger, right? And he made, no, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I mean, there's an element there. He he actually has a very diverse array of. Yeah, no, I'm I'm being. I hear what you're saying. Yeah, ridiculous. But yeah, he did not not respect the form. He didn't get it. Right, right, right. He did the comic book panel thing that was just like, uh. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a good way to forget Batman from the '60s is to just do that. Do that. <laughs> Why not just put Pow on the screen, Ang? Uh, you wouldn't like me when I'm Ang Lee. Cracked me up at the time. Um, but yeah, how about you, Ryland? What did you? Uh... It's it's an interesting question because I I grew up. You know, I was one of these kids that. I mean, I was introduced to all this stuff just way too early. Um, my mom, you know, let me watch anything and everything from basically the moment I could see. So um, I don't know. I grew up kind of de- desensitized to a lot of it, you know. But um, I mean, I'm sitting here listening to you guys, and 
you know, the Evil Dead series was uh, was formative because it wasn't just, um, you know, it wasn't just scary. It was also funny, you know. And and I mean, the the, the films that have uh, have influenced me most as a, a a creative soul have been films like Fargo, the Coen Brothers, you know, uh, uh, movies where okay, well, you're doing you're doing a dark very intense sort of crime thriller right but it's also fucking hilarious fargo is like the funniest film i've ever seen in my life probably i i'm i'm just roaring the entire time i'm 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 watching it but i'm also riveted i'm also on the edge of my seat um and i love those movies i i, I think that you know that evil dead series that's what they do is they walking that line is very very difficult and you have something that's funny and terrifying at the same time um it's uh you know it's it's not, you're not listening to a single instrument. You're listening to kind of a symphony of, um, of, of influences there. And, um, that's interesting. Um, the only, I mean, growing up desensitized like that, um, the only film I think that ever scared me really as a kid that had me looking over my shoulder and under the bed and, you know, all those things that everybody likes to say was the original Halloween. Um, and you know, I mean, I, I came up during the 80s slasher uh, uh, boom, right? And so a lot of those films were really kind of over the top. And, um, you know, just, I mean, in gore and the violence and, 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 and it becomes very hard to kind of take those seriously. They don't feel grounded, right? Um, they don't feel real. They don't feel possible to me. Um, let me tell you what's fucking scary, okay? When you're a kid, growing up in a housing project in fucking Detroit, right? Let me let me tell you what's scary. Going outside, uh, when you when you live in a place like that, right? Uh, you never know what's around the next corner, right? Um, and and so you know, I would say like moving forward as an adult, the stuff that really scares me, um, it's I don't get scared too often. What really shook me up recently? Did you see the HBO documentary "I'll Be Gone in the Dark"? Mm-hmm. Um, no, but I read the book, which was also uh, terrifying. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, Pat Oswald's wife, um, you know, helping to, um, you know, to, to hunt down this serial killer, um, and um, and just going through that whole experience, the step by step of this man, how he kind of stalked people and found people and killed them, and um, that was really scary to me because it actually happened. You know what I'm saying? And um, and uh, it had me. We would watch an episode, and I would be so tuned up that I'm going around closing windows. And, and blinds and I'm double locking doors and stuff like that. And, and I, I never get that way. Um, and so when it feels very real, uh, uh, that, that is how I get. And so if a movie can take me there, then I think that that's very interesting. And so I'm bringing this back around and the movie Halloween when I was a kid was the one film that did it. I don't know sure. why, but it just felt so visceral. It felt so real. Um, and it was so spare. Um, you know, it was it re- was really just a boogeyman story, you know, and and um, and it was this exercise in John Carpenter kind of um, just keeping you off balance the entire time, making you feel a little uncomfortable. It's uh, um, you know, nothing was arbitrary. Uh, you're seeing an on ca- camera angle, and and it's it you know it it is meticulously chosen because it, it is what is going to make you feel the most uncomfortable, the most tuned up right right then and there. The point of view stuff is very very crazy i remember watching scenes and it's like you know it's a scene of a woman doing her laundry you don't know why it's scary you don't know why it's uncomfortable and then you pause the frame and you see like michael myers is in the background staring through a fucking window you know what i'm saying it has this subconscious like effect on you um just a masterwork you know and um i don't know that it's been done as well since i generationally Here's the funny thing. I saw Halloween on the night that it takes place in oh, a movie nice. theater. Like there's there's a there's a title card. I can't remember what year that was, but I remember sitting in a theater in a suburban mall in a town that looked exactly like Haddonfield, like exactly like Haddonfield. And the date comes on screen and everyone in the audience is kind of went, <laughs> like that's wait, that's today." Wow. <laughs> and that's one of those effects like you can't repeat that. That's only going to have that effect on an audience one time, but it's still great and it's totally worth it. Uh, I remember 
I was fortunate because of my father and his colleagues and all that. I got to be friends with uh, Robert Block before he died, who invented all that. Who wrote the novel Psycho that Hitchcock kind of screwed him on. Hitchcock <laughs> went through a cutout to buy the rights from him so that he would sell them for very little, made it with his TV show unit so that it would seem like a small picture, which it is. But Block was a very funny man. And Psycho's funny. Uh, I think he was one of the first guys to go like, this is going to be like this blood curdling, horrible thing and tense as hell and also funny. And even before you get to the stabbing, even before you get to the murderer, there's a, I feel like there's a half hour of Janet Lee driving a car and between the cinematography and Janet Lee and Bernard Herman, you're like, God, what the hell could possibly happen next? I'm. Why is that cop got reflective sunglasses? Why is he creeping me out? The whole thing is so beautifully done, and I feel like uh, Carpenter did that rare thing where he imitates Hitchcock without imitating. He learns the lessons without imitating him. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. There's a lot of directors, I think, where they literally just put the old movie on this on the Xerox plate and run off something very very similar and carpenter absolutely has his own style while learning from hitchcock and hitchcock absolutely invented that idea of you watching something innocuous because but because you know the movie you're watching the person walking down the street you're like oh what horrible thing is about what do i not know about this situation that's going to be horrible um and that's a that's an unmatched thing it's the so thing perfect. that uh, the, the, one of the things that scared me the most when I was a kid, and it was because I was way too young for this particular story, not a horror movie except in maybe a societal sense. Before I really understood what science fiction was and how it worked, probably five six years old, an older neighbor explained to me the plot of Fahrenheit four fifty one, and did, I went. Did, like, did he oh, act it out? Did he act it out like Clay's babysitter? No, she didn't. Uh, but she she didn't make clear this is in an, a future, like this is science fiction. This isn't a thing that's happening now. <laughs> the government is not burning your books. Right. And I literally, it was years later that I, I, I realized this. I have a habit of memorizing things that I really love. And I realized that in a deep-seated psychological way, there's there's a five-year-old inside of me like, but what if they come and take your book that you love and burn it? So fucking memorize that shit. It's good shit. Keep it in your head at all times. And uh, I didn't love horror when I was a kid. I'm still not the like like a lot of genres. Like I don't love westerns. I love a great western. I don't love horror. I love a great horror film. Right. That's a good distinction. Uh, but my sister loved horror movies. She would only watch them with my dad. She had her own little TV in her room, but we shared a wall. So there are a dozen horror movies that the first time I experienced The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, uh, The Haunting, Trilogy of Terror, all I got was the soundtrack and my sister screaming. That's all I, and there are still movies. That's the only way I've ever experienced them. And I don't know that there's a purer experience of a horror movie than hearing Rosemary's Baby and hearing a 10-year-old girl screaming because she shouldn't be watching it. And my father going, no, honey, it's okay. It's all right. Oh, wow. Don't worry. It's okay. I'm here. It's all right. Um, And I think that was a funny way. And especially like The Haunting has such an evocative soundtrack with the house breathing and all of that um but yeah i'm a little old for the i'm not a little but the the slasher movies when they come in have really no interest for me i love halloween and every everything after that including halloween too i'm like this is just fucking stupid like i don't i'm not i'm not interested in this well, you, you had an interesting distinction about a horror fan and a fan of good horror. Like, like there's people that love everything horror, doesn't matter. They'll consume every bin in Walmart for every B-movie, yeah, doesn't matter. And they love horror. Like, I'm not like that either. Like, if it's a good my, horror movie, my I watch artist Dave Acosta on social media, and you will see an endless <laughs> posting of 
posters of movies that are legitimately terrible Sean, that he Sean, watches uh, nonstop. Sean the same way, right, Ryan? Right. Like yeah, Sean yeah. Devoren and Dave Dewan, like they'll they love like consuming. Like, oh, this is a terrible movie from 1983. I love it. Like Chopping Mall. This is amazing. Like they they love <laughs> my, the the awfulness of it. You know, my wife is like that with vampire movies. And long before we met, I edited and ghost co-wrote a terrible movie called, I kid you not, Die Hard Dracula. That sounds awesome, though. That sounds amazing. I started dating. I was looking at her VHS collection. Old people. I was looking at her VHS collection and saw a copy of Die Hard Dracula. I was like, there is no way you own this. How did... And she's like, it's a vampire movie I hadn't seen. I saw it on eBay for $10, and I ordered it, and it's the worst movie I've ever seen in my life. And I was like, I wrote it. Um, <laughs> Please tell me someone utters the line, yippee Kaye, mother sucker. No, you know, <laughs> that would be great. Come on. Let me put it this itself. way. This, this movie was such a mess that Dracula is played by three different actors and it is never explained. <laughs> wow. that's, so, that's so Ed Wood. I love it. That I tried awesome. to edit it in such a way that when he's played by that overweight guy, he's just fed. And when he's played by the skinny gaunt guy, it's when he's hungry. I don't know that that works at all in the finished film, but that was, that was all I could do to try and make it make sense for me. But it is, uh, a uh, friend of mine and a uh, deep uh, director of photography I used to work with all the time, Mark Morris, is this uh, Czechoslovakian, or I should say Czech Republic uh, stuntman. And like he knew where he could get a castle for cheap. <laughs> so he made a Dracula movie <laughs> in the Czech Republic. Uh, and it's just, oh, it's, it's bad. But back to, yep. That nice. is the cover of Die Hard Dracula. Oh, oh, wow. Die Hard Dracula. Yeah. It was it, 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 it's funny. It's funny how films like that come together. I remember um, I spent some time working for Hal Hartley, uh, the director in New York. And um, what we were trying to do is sort of build a build a like development program around Hal, you know, trying to, you know, sort of make some money, create some business around him. And, of course, he was going to continue to make his films. But so one of my primary uh, uh, duties was going through all of Hal's old scripts. He had this huge library like any of us do. You know, he had 15, 20 scripts that were on the shelf and had never been, um, uh, you know, had, had never seen the light of day. And um, how most of them came together, it was situations like you're talking about where somebody had some money, right? Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, some guy that owns a fucking chain of... Uh, hardware stores or sporting oh, goods yeah. stores or something like that. And he has, you know, he has whatever, 50, 60, a hundred grand to throw at a movie. And um, he's going to pay a young Hal Hartley $8,000 to write a movie. And here's the thing. Okay. So I want, uh, I want vampires. I want, uh, we have a, a helicopter Rivers. on this old, on this old farm that I own. So let's have a, a scene where people are getting on a helicopter uh yeah we want uh you know we want uh to see breasts 10 times uh we want to we want a lake scene because there's this cool uh lake house that we own and so it's writing by mad libs right so it's like here's a list of 15 things we need in the movie you know you who are this i mean hal, hal hartley is actually i mean he doesn't get his due but he's one of the best writers he's I think, i've ever encountered in hollywood yeah incredible and this guy could write this stuff in this you know he could write big hollywood stuff in his sleep he's never wanted to um, despite people throwing money at him, but then he would go off and he'd take his $8,000 check and he'd go off and he would put this thing together and somehow sew together something that was like, not just coherent, but in some time, at sometimes it, it was kind of amazing. Right. And so, um, so the one thing that we set up while I was there, um, I unearthed this old script. It was a vampire script, um, uh, vampires on a college campus. Um, but the premise was they didn't bite you. What happened was they would vomit blood into your mouth. And that was, that was how Yikes. you became a vampire. <laughs> and so literally it is this movie about, you know, vampires running around on college camp campuses, just vomiting a shit ton of blood into like attractive women's, uh, uh, uh mouths. Sexy. Um, yeah. And Yikes. surprisingly well-written, um, and we got it set up, uh, um, you know, sold it for a good chunk of change back then with uh, George Romero attached. 
And um, wow. it was one of my, um, you know, one of my first experiences. Uh, it was this wasn't in Hollywood, but it was kind of in a Hollywood setting. This was in New York, um, developing this crazy vampire film with a, uh, you know, an older uh, George Romero. Um, and it was interesting, interesting. George trying to rewrite the script, um, and an old George Romero trying to, um, you know, sort of write how college kids talk. You know. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't go well. He nailed hey, it, uh, I'm sure. Yeah, hey, and hey, young people on the light of day, but but um, but you know, it's it's uh, it's surprising how um, I mean, there are a million stories like that of how a film comes together. The, well, the last the last directing job I was ever offered, they sent it was a terrible cabin in the woods type script, not not a meta cabin in the woods, an actual like the first. Sixty minutes of this thing would have been just a Friday the Thirteenth knockoff, and then in the last hour it had half hour it had one really interesting idea, uh, which I may steal someday. But I gave them the gentlest notes I possibly could, and said I'm willing to work with the writer, fix it however we want. And uh, what my gentle notes accomplished is they killed the project completely. <laughs> <laughs> the producers are like, you're right. This is terrible. Terrible. <laughs> and so I, I didn't get to direct the movie. So, uh, but yeah. No, the idea that would the, the last act had the, the psycho killer has trapped our heroine and is sort of torturing her in a basement. And she is someone who is bipolar. And on her person, she has antipsychotics. So she slowly starts feeding them to the psycho killer and he becomes sane and she starts to lose it. That's a really interesting idea, but unfortunately it was the audience has already walked out. The audience has already like where it, how long it took to get to that really good idea of someone feeding their mental health medication to a person who's trying to kill them in the hope that it'll like calm them down. Uh, I thought that was brilliant, but everything else was, this was, this was a terrible writer with one good idea. Uh, and there are a lot of those, I think, in this world. Yeah, I'm, I'm reading um, Crystal Lake Memories right now, which is an oral history of the Friday the 13th movies. And uh, it's literally this same story that you guys have been telling over and over and over again for each movie. And so that's how actually I, I came across your dad's name when they were talking. I think about I it. spoke to the author of that book. Oh, you did? Yeah, I think they asked me about uh, the authorship of that because it okay. was funny. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's a great it's a great book for learning about you know the creative process and the development of a franchise. Um, but it's like it's just fascinating that you know Sean Cunningham, who who came up with the whole idea, like he just had the title. He, yeah. he had a title Friday the Thirteenth. He put out an ad in Variety and was like, "Coming soon, Friday the Thirteenth, the most terrifying movie ever." And uh, suddenly all these people wanted to buy it from him. And he was like, oh, crap, I, I got to make a movie now. Well, I think it, it's easy to forget because the movies didn't the movies didn't end up going anywhere. I have a black cat making noise right now. which is <laughs> um, Happy Halloween. Come here, Mackie. But uh, and he's named after a serial killer, which is funny. Perfect. His name is Mackie Messer, which is German for Mac the Knife. But people forget now that. What people thought worked about Halloween for some mysterious reason was the holiday aspect. Yep. So the first like dozen movies, Friday the 13th was just another like, well, that's a day on the calendar, like Halloween. There was a happy birthday movie. April Fool's Day. There was like a, they, a dozen they, holiday they, yeah. horror movies. I swear there was an Arbor Day movie. They still do Terrifying. this. Though. I mean, it's like I mean, you know, Disney is doing prom, and you know what I'm saying. It's like, uh, um, I mean, you, you, you there were at least two. It, or it's three still prom baked night into movies. Yeah, uh, even in the '80s. But uh, mm -hmm. and one of the great, there was an interview with Bob Block, uh, where someone asked him, "What do you think about the current state?" And this is such an obvious setup. They said, "What do you think about the current state of the thriller slash horror genre?" And he said, I think the emphasis is too much on the slash. Uh, which, you know, and it was a print interview. He's like, that's never no! going to translate. <laughs> like, read that out loud to yourself. <laughs> yeah. Getting back to what Ryan was saying about Halloween, how it was kind of sparse. 
And I think that was one of the first movies that kind of bridged some of those 70s more psychological horror movies, whether it's, Rose, you know, or 60s Rosemary Baby, but The Exorcist, where they treated it like serious, you know, and you had those, those build-up moments. Halloween is a slasher movie, but it really has a lot of those Donald Pleasance, like, uh, you know, detective work and, and, and backstory. And so it's, to me, it was kind of like one of the first ones that melded some of that seriousness of the 70s cinema horror with, with like the new slasher movie. And then of course there were knockoffs and that just kind of went with it and destroyed it. But you know, it was, it was on a holiday and that is important. And what we got to do clay is find a holiday that hasn't been touched yet. And like make something <laughs> boxing day year, yearly. Yeah. Well, you know, like it's the difference between surprise and suspense, right? Like a slasher movie relies too much on surprise, right? Jason jumps out through the window and and it shocks you. Um, whereas like John Carpenter with Halloween or Alfred Hitchcock with Psycho, it's about suspense. You know something bad is happening and you're just like building up that tension and building up that tension until you get that moment of release. Um, but but they knew that the, that the buildup was maybe more important than the release and that the and that the after moment was so important because for me with Psycho, the most um, like the creepiest bit about it is the whole scene after the shower scene where Anthony Perkins discovers the body and he, you know, he slaps his hand over his mouth and then he's he's cleaning it up and you're just you're, you're just watching this guy painstakingly clean the shower that is just covered in blood and wrapping the body up and putting it in the trunk. Um, that was almost as effective or more effective, I think, to me than than seeing the knife go in. And you never actually see the knife go in, right, by the way, in right. Psycho. And um, but but I think that whole thing is so masterfully done because the the book by Robert Block is great. It's so well written and it's so well paced. Um, I, you know, you can you can read that in like one sitting because it just every chapter carries you to the next, carries you to the next, carries you to the next. But the shower scene is nothing. You know, it's Janet Lee gets in the shower and uh, she's there. And then suddenly the curtain goes back and she sees a knife. And it's it's something like, you know, that was the knife that minutes later cut off her scream and her head or something like that. Right. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically it. And and the fact that Hitchcock turned it into this big thing with the build up and then, you know, the strings, the you know, the music sure. is so important. And then the after the after effect, it's it's such a big moment. And I think that's. um that's, I mean, they're both brilliant in their own rights, the book and the movie, um, but they have different strengths. Well, but yeah, I, and, and, and Block is counting on you to imagine it. Yeah. You know, Block is counting on you to think about it. And by the same token, like Hitchcock got it right. And then he got it, you know, he told Bernard Herman, no music. <laughs> right. I just want to hear the sound effects. It's going to be horrifying. And Bernard went, no, nah, I got no. some. I got something really good. <laughs> I think you should see it with picture. <laughs> and uh, well, yeah, that's that's actually really good. My dad, the beheading thing. I read a book of blocks that was. It's a really good one. It's his his homage to Lovecraft, his big Lovecraft uh, Cthulhu mythos book, which is called uh, Strange Eons, and there's a great. Beheaded. There's a scene in that where the hero rescues the heroine from a cult ritual scene, and it's beautifully written, and he's carrying her body, and he's like, it must be the adrenaline. Her body feels so light, and he gets her away, and he looks down, and he's been carrying a headless corpse. Oh. He's been running away with a headless body for a chapter, <laughs> and it's, a, it's an amazing <laughs> scene, but my dad read that, and he, he wrote Bob and said... What's with the beheadings, man? <laughs> like, what's with? <laughs> and I don't know that Bob ever said this in an interview. If any, it's shocking that nobody ever asked him this. But he wrote a letter back, which I've read, where Bob said, "I used to spend summers on my uncle's farm, and one shiny morning, I was walking around the side of a barn, and my uncle had just beheaded a chicken, and lost his grip on it." And the headless chicken ran around the side of the building into me, followed by my uncle with an axe. Incredible. And I was like, and it has never occurred to you to mention this as an interview <laughs> as like the defining moment of your entire life. Like literally you're a different person who writes 
Harlequin romances if that doesn't happen to you. Like, or actually, in his case, I think he would have written, you know, satire because there's so much satire in his work. But uh, I always remember that Bob Locke, you know, eight year old Bob Locke and the headless chicken that changed culture forever uh, by running into him and, and making that making that impact on him. Since we're all comic book people, I wanted to talk about horror comics. And if you guys had ever read any when you were kids or if that had any influence on you. I was not a big horror comics guy. I was always into the superheroes, but I've lately gotten into reading like the old Warren stuff, you know, the creepy and the eerie and the vampirella. Um, and, and uh, like, there's fantastic stuff out there now, like um, James Tinian's um, razor blades, which, uh, which was a, is an online thing. They've done one issue. It's an anthology there. I think the next one comes out uh, this week. Uh, I think this it, it comes out this week two days ago on Monday. Um, but uh, th so there's that. There's also Taboo, which, um, you know, is an older, uh, I think that was late 80s, early 90s with Steve Bissett and uh, uh, Alan Moore. That's where uh, From Hell was originally published. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of rediscovering all of those things now. Uh, that I didn't get to uh, that I didn't get to read when I was a kid because my, my parents were always so, already sort of suspicious that I, I read all these comic books. You know, they thought that it was rotting my brain uh, and that superheroes were bad enough. So I, I didn't think I could go to the to the horror stuff just then. What about you, David? Yeah, I did. I didn't read much uh, of the horror comics. I think there was probably some tales from the crypt or some of that 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 EC stuff that my brothers had laying around. But for the most part, I kind of skipped over that. Um, yeah, I, I don't have an answer like Clay because it's just, uh, I'd be making it up. <laughs> <laughs> Tales from the Crypt, though, I, I used to love that show on HBO. That was uh, right. that was fantastic. And I, I have not read any of the old DC comics, but I would love to check it out. I mean, I'm, it's... They're pretty great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, whole, that whole era of DC comics, the war comics from that era are also great. Two-Fisted Tales and the combat stories and all that. Is that all um, before the the code, David? Like, is that yeah pre code? Okay, yeah, so that, that's when they started. They they were just putting some crazy stuff out, weren't they? Yeah, they caused the code. I think. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. No. And, and, and the war stuff, and the crime stuff, and the horror stuff is all equally gory and nightmarish. And right. the war comics are they're well written and they're beautifully drawn, but they're also just another excuse for violence and gore and shock and all of that. But that's what people. Uh, that's what kids had with, back uh, then. Like you didn't. You didn't have. You, that's what kids had back then. You didn't have that type of level of violence in like TV shows or even movies. Yeah. Like, I mean, kids were like, "This is a gold mine." You go into a comic shop or you go into a drugstore and you pull these things out. That was that was uh, streaming services for them back then, and you could get anything you wanted. And so it was kind of a, it was kind of wild. I'd hate to say you needed the code, but that's a funny uh, term. Clay said they cost the code. I think if you're <laughs> if you're you're a vanguard, if you've caused the code for something. And well, and the, the horror comics I loved when I was a teenager were Len Ween and Bernie Wrightston's run on Swamp Thing. And uh -huh. I think it's interesting that what eventually kills the code is Alan Moore's Swamp Thing. Mm -hmm. That's when they eventually went, you know what, let's the code isn't gonna be okay with this. Let's just run an issue without that thing in the corner. And it happened and DC Comics didn't go out of business and they went, oh, and that's of course where Vertigo comes from too, is also let's have a whole line of things that don't obey the comics code. Right. No, and relevant to what I'm doing for you guys in your anthology, one of my oh, favorite Oh, the anthology, comics, that's right. Yeah, one wait, of my wait, favorite wait, wait, things. You, you, you guys have put an anthology together? That's I don't know, it, 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 it just happened. killing it on Kickstarter right now. Yeah. One, one of my oh, wow. favorite things when I was a kid was Weird War Tales which was this DC comic that was a companion piece to all of their DC war comics, which I also read, I think partially because my dad was a veteran. I was obsessed with that whole period. Uh, and there, they were these twilight zony horror stories that were all self-contained. There was no like running each issue was a completely different story. And honestly, they were civil war stories and world war one stories. Like they jumped all over the place. Uh, but they were these Tales from the Crypt-y kind of Twilight Zone-y uh, single-issue stories that were really creepy and great and wonderful. And another 
one of the most ridiculous things ever in the history of comics. And to me, so laser pointed at what little boys liked in the 70s was the war that time forgot, which I think is a name it got later. In Star Spangled War comics, there was a long series of standalone GIs fighting dinosaurs on islands in the Pacific stories. They <laughs> found worked, a new way every issue for an American soldier to get lost on a Pacific island and see it. It was all King Kong type stuff, you know, original King Kong stuff. But it has always struck me, and I don't know if this was on, I don't, I've never read an interview with the editors at DC, who, but it always seems to me like, how did they come up with the idea for this? What toys do little boys have? Well, they have toy soldiers and they have big plastic dinosaurs. I think we can make a gold mine out of toy soldiers versus big plastic dinosaurs. And they're, of course, because it's DC in the 70s, the art is gorgeous. They're pretty well written for what they are, you know. Uh, but I was obsessed with those comics when I was a kid. They're, they're, they're still doing the dinosaur thing. It's funny because I have a four-year-old daughter and, um, you know, she watches all these Nick Jr. programs and every single Nick Jr. show, I'm talking about dozens of them, at the very least has their, like, oh, these guys run into dinosaurs uh, episode, you know? It, it's it, literally, like, you know, it's, it's you know, monster trucks with faces and voices and stuff like that and they're off on an adventure and they just trip over dinosaurs one episode. You know, every... Every single uh, property needs their dinosaur episode in uh, in Paw Patrol, which is kind of like the, you know, it is the huge property for young kids right now. Um, their entire new season has to do with dinosaurs. Like they have found this place called the Dino Wilds and they go there and they're having all their adventures in the Dino Wilds now. Um, and there's a pup that can talk to dinosaurs and stuff like that. So it's, it's funny how that stuff just, I mean, you know, I mean, they've done it forever and it's, it's just, it's cruising along now. They're, they're just printing money with dinosaurs. And it is for that very reason. I mean, she has her uh, she has her Paw Patrol toys. She has her her plastic dinosaurs. And, well, uh, you know, and... the the obvious fascination of dinosaurs for anyone, but particularly for kids, is you grow up in a world where there you know there's all of this fantasy and horror and science fiction art about monsters and dragons and creatures, and then you've got this thing that's actually real. Yeah. You can go, yeah. it's like being able to go into a museum and look at a skeleton of a dragon. Yeah. yeah. And that's incredibly, like, this is an actual thing that walked the earth. And yeah, you yeah. missed it. It was 65 million years ago. But when you're, I remember being a kid and being fascinated by those skeletons. That, that's not going to go away. Dinosaurs is not going to, like, somehow go out of fashion for kids. Um, no. People love dinosaurs. And why wouldn't you? You know, it's like the best thing ever. Like to see those skeletons as you're, when you're a kid. Uh, yeah, you can't compete with that. Yeah. No, and in the yeah, I mean, I, in the Ninja Turtles, they get to outer space dinosaurs within six issues. Well, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The Triceratons, but then there's also a standalone movie where uh, where they're in some sort of dinosaur world, and they're and they're like they're literally riding. They're all riding dinosaurs, almost like horses and stuff like that. I don't remember what it's called. Um, but my daughter has some of the toys. I mean, we, you know, when, when we had Eastman on, we were talking about her kind of, you know, becoming obsessed with the turtles and taking the dive into the toys, but there's an entire line of Ninja Turtle toys now where it is the turtles riding dinosaurs with saddles on them. And stuff sure. Like that. It's crazy. But, now, but yeah, get, I mean, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I, I, mean, I was going to change the subject. So if you're going to build on this. No, I was going to change the subject, too. So what's, what, well, what's your I, new subject? Yeah, well, well, I mean, I, I, answering the question uh, of the, the horror comics, uh, you know, that I that influenced me while I was growing up, I don't know that there were any, you know, straight 100% horror comics that I was, um, you know, that I was obsessed with. But, I mean, two of the more, you know, formative books, I would say if I was going to pick five books that influenced me more than anything, um, you know, I go back to that those early vertigo books that you were sort of alluding to before, but um, preacher and, and hellblazer were not horror books, 100% or, you know, traditionally, you know, what you would think about as a horror book, but they were all just sort of steeped in these horror elements. You know, all of those lessons that we were talking about that can be learned from um, whether it's psycho or from watching a, a Halloween, um, all of those books were kind of infused with all of that stuff. Right. Um, uh, that that sense of dread, that sense of you know something horrible is always waiting around the corner. Um, uh, and you know, is it around this corner? No. Is it around that corner? No. 
um, you know, so much suspense, so much tension in them. And then also, you know, when you have a guy like Garth Ennis writing them, then you get into the gore and the, uh, you know, the, the over the top stuff that, um, dark humor. And, yeah. And so, um, those books are really influential on me. And so I think if you, um, you know, if you read Aberrant and, and, and Banjax and the Jump, you can see a lot of that, a lot of the DNA of those books uh, in, in my books, um, even though my books aren't straight horror. But, um, you know, I mean, even when I'm, uh, I mean, I get my day job is writing fucking, you know, action movies um, and action movies can be really bad. But I think one of the reasons I've stayed employed in this town for 15 years when everyone I came up with is now like back in fucking you know, Pennsylvania selling insurance or whatever, uh, um, is, uh, is that, um, I try and write them a different way, you know? And, um, uh, I would say that the action movies I write are more influenced by Halloween, by, uh, by Hellblazer, by Preacher, um, than, you know, let's say a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie I watched when I was, uh, uh, you know, 10. So, you know, those, uh, those movies do influence me and I well, do love them. <laughs> you know, and not to, not to get back to the plug, but the, the, the Elvira Omega Man thing, beyond that, the Omega Man is one of those movies I have loved since I was a little kid and I watch it now. It's not good, <laughs> but it's got elements to it that still work really beautifully. And one of the things in it that has there are there are ideas and feelings and visual ideas and story ideas in that movie that show up in a lot of my work and one of them is the single person against the world feeling which is so well done in that movie and so strong and the guy clinging to a thing that's dead <laughs> and he is the last representation of it um and there's a lot i mean that movie i think more than more than you want to give it credit for because of when it's made. Heston's character is not necessarily like, you know, it goes back to the Richard Matheson short story where the title I am legend comes from is the hero realizing, Oh, I'm the monster, right? I'm murdering all of them. <laughs> like the vampires think I'm the vampire because I'm the guy that comes while they're sleeping and butchers them and kills their children and destroys their homes and burns them and all that. Uh, and it's a, it's some of that sophistication, whether they liked it or not, sinks into that movie. I think it. I watched it again recently, and the most shocking thing to me is the villain is not killed. Charlton mm -hmm. Heston dies at the end of that movie. Anthony Zerbe does not. The bad guy does not get what's coming to him. He gets to live another day. And Heston may have saved the future of humanity, but I always think, and again, it's a perfect example of it, the best villain is the villain that has a point where you go, yeah, but that's not how you solve that problem, dude. <laughs> like it's all of the bond villains. Like the world is overpopulated and we kill everybody. It's like, well, yes, the world is overpopulated. You have an excellent point. I don't know that flowers from, you know, poison from outer space is really the way to go to solve it. But all this stuff, uh, Matthias, the leader of the cult says in the Omega man, about how technological man brought about his own death. Even in 1971 or 72, you're like, well, yeah, I mean, he's completely right there. And another incredibly prescient thing about that movie, even to the degree of Donald Trump, is he's a TV newsreader. The guy who becomes the messiah-like leader of the post-apocalyptic cult gets the job because he was the ABC news guy while the world was ending. And that's a very, to very me, prescient. <laughs> in a movie that's not necessarily super sophisticated, that's a fairly sophisticated idea. Sure. That who's going who's gonna to inherit the earth? The last guy the lunatic saw on television. That's who's going to inherit the earth. And that's uh, depressing. But, you know, that's what I was kind of talking about at the head of like, you know, even just the idea of a man alone on a world of creatures that are trying to kill him. That's a compelling storytelling idea. And you can ring a thousand, uh, you can ring a thousand variations out of that that are interesting without just simply redoing "I Am Legend." 
Well, getting back to what you guys were saying or Rylan was saying about, hey, this isn't really a horror movie or whatever. There's all kinds of different types of horror movies. Obviously, like you can find horror in any type of genre. So what we wanted to do with the anthology is, you know, use it as a cinematic structure and to be like, you know, we're not, these aren't homage, like this isn't something we're trying to emulate, but it's like, this is the genre that we're playing in. So there's a slasher movie, there's a, there's a psychological thriller horror. There's uh, David Peppos has something really cool that's like kind of sci-fi, zombie stuff. So you know, and we want to the bring war story. You and you yeah. have that amazing war story, and like, there's so many great stories in this. And like, we wanted to structure it as a film festival. It's like a horror film festival with a hostess, and um, we're really excited to get it out there. Ryland couldn't make this one. I know, like, you're busy with. Uh, Peacekeepers and everything else, but next time, if there's, if there's a volume two, if we can volume actually get two. through it, right, Clay? Yeah, absolutely. Volume two, bring it on. Yeah, I, I dropped the ball big time. <laughs> you it's can all good. You're a busy you. man. I'm very, I'm very happy. Interesting. Well, uh, we're, and- we're stoked that like you and Charlie Stickney and all, all these other huge uh, indie comic names yeah. like agreed to like be a part of it. It's incredible. It's an amazing array of talent. It's really yeah. and it just launched people- yesterday. It's amazing. <laughs> blowing it I up i think people are i think people are going to really dig it and there's such a variety you have you have christy shin in there too right yeah, we, yeah. well we have it's funny because we have these little sections like as a as a film festival there's like the opening night dark opening night and then there's uh shorts oddities and dead ends so there's like because even uh eddie d'angelini has a collector strip that's like a psycho strip and it's like so we have a section that's like shorter fun odds and ends and we have Another section is like slasher movies or like late night creepers and things like that. So we try to structure it in that way. And um, Kyle Roberts did this amazing interstitial art. He did one of the, he did the main cover. Um, Sora Sung has got a cover. Um, uh, Orlando Aracena did this amazing uh, vintage poster cover. So yeah, we're, we're pretty excited to bring this thing uh, so, forward. While we were in the green room getting ready to start this thing today, Sylvia Califano sent me page eight, the last page. Oh, nice. And I've seen most of the colors so far on my piece, and it looks, I couldn't be happier with it. Ellie, so, Ellie Wright a, is doing the colors? It's uh, Ellie Wright, yeah. Yeah, she's great. She is She is really terrific. She's doing she, Baby uh, Badass uh, 2 and 3, by the way, from by your recommendation. What's that? She's doing Baby Badass 2 and 3 yeah, colors. Yeah, I try yeah. to get Ellie as much nice. work as I can, because she, uh, I think Betty Page might have been her first job like i feel like we i feel like she graduated from an art school and someone at dynamite grabbed her and they're like we've got this teenage irish girl (laughs) (laughs) or 20 year old irish girl uh i could be completely wrong about that but it just seemed like she was brand new and the stuff was so good on betty page right away like it was so professional and fit the feeling of the comic so well, and I'm so lucky to have uh, Sylvia Califano, who was suggested to me by great editor Kevin Kentner, who I worked with at Dynamite for a long time. And uh, it's funny when I sent the script to Dave Acosta, he's like, "I, I don't want to draw tanks, man." <laughs> that was that <laughs> was the I reason. That was the funniest. And then he ended up. I think he ended up doing a piece for Alex DeCampi's War Anthology that was like a Vietnam War piece, and I was like, "Dude." Dude. Like what, what's you're willing to do jungle like 1970s tanks but not 1940s tanks um but i realized when he suggested uh sylvia to me that because she does star trek at idw i was like this is someone who's going to be fine with my nitpicking over uniforms and guns and helmets and tanks because her entire life is people telling her how to draw a phaser and no, the Enterprise Bridge looks like this. Not, I mean, her work on Star Trek is excellent, and her yeah. research skills are excellent. But it's like she doesn't mind being told, "No, that's slightly smaller than," <laughs> you know. And her her raw work has just been fantastic. So I can't wait for everybody to see it. Yeah, the pages look fantastic. The, Thank that you. you've been posting, yeah, really yeah. great. Thank you. Yeah, I'm trying to trying to get it out there so that people are excited. And I, you know, I know that. Probably everyone said this to you, but I fully intend to use those eight pages to launch an entire comic book series. <laughs> There's uh, a little of that. There's a little of that going around. Yeah. 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 Good, which is great. And then I think like, 
we'll always have this book that a lot of these play, these stories started in. And we we saw that as a launching pad opportunity too. not, not that it's an excuse to do it, but the stories are so good. Like, why wouldn't you do it type of situation? Yeah. So. Well, I mean, that, and that's, I feel like that's, if there's anything that Kickstarter is good for, and Rylan and I have talked about this on many previous shows, uh, you know, when you're, when you're doing all the work yourself, when you're doing it the hardest possible way, when there's no, publisher paying you you uh, why not do the thing you always dreamed about doing like there's no what's the what's the percentage in selling out what's the percentage in doing the boring thing you might as well do the thing and i'm i've said this to you guys before this story is something i've wanted to do since i was a child uh it's been a thing in my head since my father put it there when i was you know hearing bedtime stories from him as a kid so it's great that we live in a time and have these opportunities that we're able to go, I'm going to do this thing that I dreamed about that no public, I don't know that any publisher would have grasped this concept easily, but now I'm going to have an eight page gorgeous right. version of it where I can say, I got another hundred pages of this in me <laughs> easily. Uh, and, and it will work as a prelude to that. Actually the last panel of the story of the eight page story german chocolate uh, what's that german chocolate yeah german chocolate the last panel Great of german title. chocolate the first the first uh it's for for people who don't know the concept it's a world war ii fairy tale thing and uh the first chapter of this that i wrote years ago is the R little red riding hood story the story in uh german chocolate is the hansel and gretel story the last panel has Little Red Riding Hood riding her bicycle by in the background. So it's, it is a setup for setting the up the sequel, the, the right. first issue of the thing. So anyway, we can, you know, we can move on. And I think we actually wrote an hour, so we should wrap up. But I did want to talk about, uh, you know, how that sort of grew out of a, a lifetime of uh, reading horror comics and how it was... Uh, how it was influenced by that and how what you guys are putting together you're literally getting every you're getting the collective literally nightmare theater it's like everyone's thing that they wanted to do that's crawled right. out of their subconscious right i mean your yours is very personal and and you can tell like how passionate you are about it and we're glad to have it we have something that's not quite as personal but we, it was something that we kicked around for a long time it's an idea i had a long time ago called nightmare with a k and it's imagine like a, it's a small world uh, ride with animatronics, but they're medieval. And there's a story where the, the people that died on this ride, like their souls inhabit it and they come to life. So it's a very 80s kind of late 80s slasher type movie, but we want to do a twist on it. Like my whole thing is it's okay to play in a genre that's been um, well, well trod, but do something different with it, have fun with it, like do something unique. And so we tried to do that with our story nightmare. And I think, like you said, everyone that's contributing is doing that thing that they wanted to do and do it in their own way. So it's like, I think we've got like the best of the best uh, of people's uh, work. Yeah. Why don't we go ahead and um, let's, uh, let's go around the, uh, the wheel here. We'll start with you uh, Schrader and uh, remind us who you are. Tell us where to find you. Uh, and um, you know, give us one last pitch for that sure. book. I am uh, David Schrader. I can be found on Twitter and Instagram, Schraderopolis, or The Baby Badass. Um, Nightmare Theater just just came out on Kickstarter yesterday. It's blowing up. Uh, check it out. A lot of great. It's a cinematic horror anthology. Uh, a lot of great artists. A lot of great creators uh, have come together. It's like over 35 teams. And I think from top to bottom, the book is really, really fantastic. We're excited to get it out there. Clay? Yep, I'm Clay Adams. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Clay's Evil Twin. Uh, you can also find my work at FriedComics.com. And be sure you look for Red Xmas coming out this December from Scout Comics. And go back Nightmare Theater, which is, uh, I believe Pepos gave us a, a nice short link, which I think is bit.ly slash Nightmare Theater. That's pretty good. Yeah. Also, we're, we're, nice. if you want to see a young Clay as a, as a murderer... You can rent Bloodline from Lionsgate. Lionsgate. One word, Bloodline. Incredible. Yeah, you know, 2005 horror film. Check it out. Good times. Nice. Great talking to you guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. What do Thank you got you. for us, Avalone? 
Uh, I am a supervillain and I live in a volcano uh, yes. with this cat. Um, and my finest work is a film called uh, Die Hard Dracula, available on eBay for probably $1.99. Uh, but aside from that, you can find all my stuff at my website, which is uh, davidavalonefreelance.com. Why not just davidavalone.com? You'd have to ask GoDaddy because they are rat bastards. Uh, but I can, that has the links to everything. Elvira, the Omega Mam is still, uh, cruising along on, uh, on Kickstarter and I'm, it's a very funny book and I'm very proud of it. And that's my stuff. Ryland. Uh, and I, as always, am Ryland Grant. Uh, I am on, uh, all forms of social media at Ryland Grant. That's R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents just kind of arranged some letters randomly and, uh, saddled me with it. Um, hard to spell, hard to find. So, uh, at Ryland Grant, uh, my books, uh, Aberrant and Banjax can be found, uh, in fine comic shops, uh, everywhere, um, uh, on Comixology, Amazon, you know, all the, uh, usual, uh, places. Um, my last Kickstarter book, The Jump is still available. Um, a, uh, sort of supernatural thriller that takes place in the world of astral projection. It might've been great, uh, for a, uh, a nightmare, uh, theater uh, story but um too. never got around to it because i'm a broke loser but um <laughs> uh however uh that can be found uh, uh still available uh, via backer kit at the jump all one word dot backer com. and um i guess you know it's the in fashion thing to do so i have a kickstarter going also um didn't want to be left out um the third kickstarter of the uh, uh of this 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 wheel here um uh my book the peacekeepers uh, a uh, love letter to dark and quirky crime dramas is available uh, uh, on Kickstarter right now. Tearing it up, uh, yep. setting records, smoking fools, lighting up chumps. Uh, it's been uh, uh, deemed the greatest book to ever hit Kickstarter. Uh, so go check it out. I'm sure we'll have a graphic up or something like that. Uh, as per usual, all the uh, info and all these uh, wonderful projects and all these wonderful people uh, is available in the show notes uh, down below. If you are listening, if you're watching this, excuse me, on one of our three uh, uh, YouTube channels, uh, make sure to smash that like button, uh, hit subscribe, uh, you know, uh, uh, tweet us out, recommend us, uh, get some more eyes on this thing. Uh, if you are listening on um, uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or other fine purveyors of ear crack, subscribe, leave us a five-star review, grab your friend's phone, uh, subscribe them to us. That's the uh, the fun thing to do. All the, the cool kids are doing it. Um, we will be back next week with more fun and more excitement and, uh, and all that uh, fine stuff. So, um, yeah, see you then. Thanks, guys. Thank you. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.